Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today's episode is uh, one which was unplanned, but as the election atmosphere heats up, so does my frustration with Christian politics. So I was I was actually sort of compelled to create this episode. It was it was kind of crawling out of my skin. I just had to do it. Now, it might seem a little bit weird to those who know me or who have listened to this podcast before because I'm not really a big one on voting. And in fact, I'm actually planning on abstaining from this election. And in that sense, I do feel more freed because I'm viewing this election from the outside. And if you've never done that before by choice, like where, where you really do have uh, concerns and and uh, you know things that you might be more encouraged by than others, um, you really should try to take a step back one election. And this would, would really be an ideal election to be able to do that. Because when you do, you're, it was like for the first time in my life, I'm kind of able to see just the, the frenzy and the fervor and the, just the craziness uh, of it all. Because it doesn't matter which side you look to, everybody's got got this agenda that they're just buying into. And uh, if you're a Democrat, you're going to believe the absolute worst things that you hear and you don't need verification for any of your news. And if you're a Republican, the exact same thing is true. And it's almost like truth has just disappeared. Um, nothing is true that's bad for my side and nothing is true that's good for the other side. And it's it's insane. And this is the first time that I feel like I've I've actually been able to really step back and, and see that, and it's um, I, I don't I don't know what better word to describe it than insane. So now, now I still have to struggle with what is true and what isn't, uh, of course. But because I'm not devoted to a party or candidate, and I don't feel like I owe them my allegiance, I can be honest about the bad things on one side without feel like feeling like I'm sacrificing the power of that party, I feel like I'm able to be a lot more objective. And it's just an interesting feeling. It's an interesting feeling to experience, but an interesting thing to, to observe as well in, in our society. So then you might be asking, what could get me frustrated if I'm abstaining, if I don't really have a dog in the fight? And uh, it's not the in the Christian politics, it's not the politics part that I'm finding the most frustrating right now. It's more the the Christian part. And that's because I expect people who are pursuing power and coercive force to be immoral and make moral compromises. I expect that from politicians. That's just par for the course, right? What bothers me isn't that the United States is going to hell in a handbasket as a result of politics. It's that as the world goes to hell, the church is failing to be a distinctive witness to an alternative way. My concern isn't so much the little K kingdom, the nation. My concern is rather the big K kingdom, the, the purity and witness of the church. Because I believe that it's the church that has the only hope to offer the world. By propping up and supporting the big K kingdom first, it will actually end up being better for the little K kingdom in the long run. And conservatives say this all the time with marriage, right? Uh, don't put your wife first or your spouse first. Don't put your children first. You put God first. And when you do that, it ends up being better for your children and for your spouse. Well, 
I think the same thing's true of your nation. If you don't put your politician first or your agenda first, but you put God first and integrity first, then you maintain a distinctive witness. And even though you might lose some sort of power in the moment, in the long run, that's what's ultimately best for the nation. Unfortunately, the church in America, in my opinion, has started to view our role as compromise and complicity with evil in order to accomplish what we perceive to be God's ends, what we want God's ends to be or what we think his ends actually are. And, and this is highlighted nowhere better than in the echo chamber of politics. Now, since I'm in the conservative echo chamber, surrounded by conservative Christians, I want to do my duty and speak out against my own group's problems in this episode. I could certainly create an episode against the other side as well, but that's not what my heart and my group needs. Um, We need to have a conversation with ourselves first. So let's start to have that conversation. Like I said, this episode was unplanned initially. I mean, I just, yesterday... I, I, uh, I, is when the idea came and I, I had to do it. And it's because I came across two pieces of media in the last few days, which kind of spurred me on to do this. And the first piece of media was Phil Vischer's video on abortion and politics. And Vischer said many of the same things that I said in my abortion series, and, and then some. I mean, he added, he added a, a bit. He highlighted the impotence of politics to truly change things, and especially its inability to change hearts. And I think that's a a really important point. I'm not going to spend too much time on here, but I will have a lengthy episode at the end of the next season. It's already recorded. Um, I'll have a lengthy episode discussing legislation and what legislation really does and how it's more of a reflection than it is a catalyst towards good. But that's beside the point. I'll put Vischer, a link to Vischer's video below or in the show notes in case you haven't seen it. But that's not what caused me to, to want to do this episode. So I heard a podcast. I, don't, I think it, it was a response in part to, to Vischer's video. And the, the podcast is from Wretched Radio. Now, Wretched Radio had Scott Klusendorf on, somebody who I had heard before and somebody who I've actually drawn a lot from in regard to the anti-abortion position. So some of the things and probably some of the links that I have in the abortion series, you can you can find Klusendorf's name probably in a number of those there. In this episode, however, Klusendorf uh, is going to connect his anti-abortion position to the importance of one-issue voting. He's going to connect his position to politics. And that's where I'm going to start to have a problem. Now, because I got this link from a, a, one of my wife's former apologetics professors, I know that it's going to be making the rounds really quickly, and it's going to encourage a lot of Christians uh, to vote a particular way, or it's going to solidify their confidence in the way that they're already planning on voting. Right? We're, we are in an echo chamber. Now, maybe that echo is good in this regard, and that's for you to decide. However, I want to provide a dissenting voice here and, and maybe help us have a conversation that I think is, is very needed in regard to this one-issue voting thing. So before we get into this, it might be helpful if you stop this episode and listen to the Wretched Radio episode, but I am 
particularly going to be pulling from the episode around the 23-minute mark, though I, I will refer to some things that are, are throughout the rest of the episode as well. But if you want to focus on just one section, it's like you know minute 23 to 28 maybe, um, right before the commercial, I think. I'll try to summarize the, uh, the portion I'm focusing on. Uh, I'll try to summarize that as, as graciously as I can. Um, I, I hope I don't misconstrue anything or miss anything, but uh, I'll give it my best shot here in case you don't want to spend an hour to listen to that podcast as well. So in the episode, Klusendorf argues that Christians ought to vote in a manner which limits the most evil and promotes the most good. Because abortion is obviously an egregious evil and the most egregious evil in, in terms of what we're, we're voting for, Glusendorf says that the Christian voter is obliged to vote for the pro-life candidate. To not do so would be akin to saying that one would not vote against Hitler and the Holocaust for some minor evils. Like, I wouldn't vote against Hitler, I wouldn't vote for a candidate who was just crass. I'd rather not vote, or I'd rather vote for Hitler, because this other guy is, is crass. And then, as a down-to-earth, intuitive analogy, Klusendorf tells us to imagine that there's a fire and that there are people trapped inside a building. One man's standing outside, and he's a really nice guy, at least on the surface, but he doesn't do anything to help the people trapped inside. Or maybe he's even holding a, a can, a, a can of gasoline, presumably to pour on the fire. Now, there's a second man standing outside this building that's on fire, and this man is crass, and um, he decides to run into the burning building to, to save some people. Now, obviously, the nice guy in the scenario represents Democrats, and the crass one represents President Trump, just in case you weren't clear on who is who there. But Klusendorf asks us which one of those individuals would be moral, and which is the individual that we would cheer on. And obviously, you're intended to say, well, the guy who runs in and, and saves the people, of course, because what connection does his crassness have to do with his willingness to save lives? Klusendorf's arguments have a lot of intuitive force, but there are at least nine problems I've identified, which I'll break up in this episode into two categories, um, the moral theological, and then more of the just practical factual, just the things that I would take issue with. So let's go ahead and begin with the moral theological issues. First, Klusendorf assumes that participation with the system is necessary. And we've talked about this a lot over many different episodes. But those who believe that the ends justify the means, even if they say they don't believe that, uh, people who believe that tend to back themselves and others into false dichotomies. And that's part of the reason this podcast is called The Fourth Way. People are always assuming that if you aren't willing to do violence and fight, then you have to choose between being a coward and fleeing or fighting, right? Those are your, those are your only two choices, and there's only one of those choices that uh, seems morally positive, right? You fight and you help. You do justice. Now, such thinking like that limits actions that we have available to us, and it's one of the reasons why things like the Underground Railroad and those helping Jews in Nazi Germany were so few. Well, if I, if I can't fight the Nazi government and kill Germans, what good am I going to do, right? I, I can't really do anything, um, so you end up doing nothing. And that's why we need a third way a lot of times, or um, 
a fourth way, which is, is what we try to put forward. Binary thinking often gives you no moral options, and it significantly limits one's perspective and creativity in, in a lot of situations where you need that third option to do the right thing. And I don't think that this is any less true in Klusendorf's binary thinking on politics. According to him, since we have to choose between a Republican and a Democrat, the choice is obvious for Christians. You pick the one who doesn't want to kill babies. Now, Klusendorf, his moral conclusion might be right if we had to choose in a binary fashion, but we don't have to choose between the two. We can vote third party, we can write in another name, or we can abstain. And I've defended these ideas in several other episodes before. I know the, the rebuttals that people are going to try to give to that, and, and I just disagree and think that most people have never thought about it before because we've been indoctrinated to, to think a particular way, and most of us, most of the time, are consequentialists whether we think that we are or not. So I'll put some links to other episodes and resources in the, in the show notes below, um, and you can, you can follow those links if you'd like, or you can contact me and I'll, I'll do my best to give you a personalized answer. But the main thing that's important to know here is that there are more than two options, and you should explore the moral weight of other options from those who have thought through the issue. This episode is going to focus mostly on deconstructing the, the binary, this idea that Klusendorf's choice is really a good thing. And uh, I don't want you to be left with just this gaping hole of like, well, then uh, I'm stuck with choosing immorality or I'm stuck in doing nothing because I think there's another way. Um, but that's, it's pretty complicated and you should seek that out. All right. So first, Klusendorf gave us a false binary. The second problem is that Klusendorf's assumption uh, in, in that he is able to pick and choose what he likes from his platform and take credit only for the good things. What's ironic about this is that Klusendorf knows, he absolutely knows that this isn't true because he would never let a Christian who votes Democrat get away with doing the same thing. If I voted Democrat as a Christian because I liked their social policies but hated abortion, Klusendorf would say that I can't disassociate abortion from my vote. In fact, isn't that what, what this whole podcast that he put out is about? About why you can't vote Democrat as a Christian? Why that just doesn't work? Because you have to take on abortion um, and you can't just say, well, my intent is to vote for this other thing. No, uh, of course. And I agree with, with Klusendorf's intuitive assumption when he rails against the Democrats, but I I disagree that he's able to then dodge his own assumption. I have to take the bad with the good. I'm responsible for the whole package here. And Klusendorf's whole argument relies on pinning abortion to the Democratic platform. So I, I just can't accept this. It's, uh, it's hypocrisy, in my opinion. And, I mean, I'd give Klusendorf the benefit of the doubt. I, I think he's a great guy, and I don't think he probably sees it. But uh, it's, a, it's a double standard here. Now, at one point... Klusendorf does sort of try to, to dodge this in the way that he phrases things. Um, and it sounds really good on the surface. Klusendorf says something to the extent that, you know, I don't like to, to say that I'm choosing between the lesser of two evils. I choose to lessen the evil. Something to that extent. Now, that's a euphemism that hides the fact that he has to accept his whole party's platform and, and the evils that they have. It's equivocation because 
he's able to use that language to get out of uh, a particular situation um, of, of taking his whole party's package or, or his leader's package while he doesn't allow the same thing for the other side. When you vote, you are placing your stamp of approval onto a platform. At least that's how it works in our country. Now, if, if you do vote for someone and that person changes positions or does something that you didn't know they were going to do, I wouldn't consider somebody morally culpable for that. And, and Klusendorf highlights that, and I think he's right about it. But when there's a platform that tells you exactly what their intentions are, or if there's a leader who represents himself or herself as evil in various ways, then you know to whom you are handing your power and representation and what you're handing it over for. The evil that comes from that's on you, whether you like it or not, and no matter what your intentions are. And, and I'll come back to this a little bit later in, in point number five when we talk about double effects a little bit. The third moral problem here is that Klusendorf assumes making abortion illegal is doing the most good. About 100 years ago, there was another group of Christians who thought that prohibiting something would do the greatest good, and they were dead wrong. Now, I, I can't say whether or not making abortion illegal would end up being the most morally pragmatic thing to do. Maybe it would be, maybe it would be good. Maybe we could uh, reduce abortion significantly. I don't know. But it might also be that voting for a platform like the current Republican one and a person as morally compromised as a lot of people see President Trump as being, uh, including a lot of Christians like myself, it might be that compromising in such a way would, would finally topple our already crumbling distinctive witness as the church to the world. And I would see a society that persecutes Christians not because they're distinctive threats, but because they're overbearing hypocrites, I would see those as being two different types of societies. And that's how our society views Christians at the moment. We, we tout a particular type of morality and particular ethics, which we ourselves then don't adhere to. When Christians were persecuted in Rome, it was because they didn't buy into the state. They undermined their gods and rulers, and they threw off their purple robes and threw down their swords. At our moment in history, we're pretty much doing the opposite. We're vying for power and attempting to wrest that out of the hands of leaders while not sticking to our moral distinctiveness. We might be salt and light, but we're salt without savor, and we are light that is hidden under a bushel. And I, I've seen this firsthand because since the last election, a lot of my atheist friends and acquaintances have lost their respect for Christians, what, what respect they had left for them, because they saw a Christian willingness to compromise with evil. Now, in, in this next election, uh, it, being pragmatic or consequentialist as, as we are in our voting— we might get Supreme Court justices and the White House, and maybe abortion will decrease by 12% as is estimated with an overturning of Roe versus Wade. But a, maybe a bigger question is, what will the religious landscape and the fertility of the soil look like in the U.S. in order to get us that? And what might the backlash be in regard to legislation once the opposition gains control? It's quite possible that abortion laws will come back and be far more liberal than they are now once the opposition gains power. And that's kind of the point. We don't know what the future holds, and we don't know what ramifications our actions have. Yet, Klusendorf in this, uh, in this episode is essentially 
justifying a position based on consequences, um, even though he says he's not, I, I would argue that he is, and we just don't know the consequences. Klusendorf thinks he knows what the greatest good is, but for him, the greatest good seems to be what he perceives to be the greatest immediate good. Now, if consequentialism were a valid means of justifying evil, which I don't think it is, which that, that's why I have a whole uh, season dedicated to that, but if consequentialism were a valid means of justifying evil, Klusendorf fails to assess the long-term landscape and the long-term goods he's sacrificing for potential, small, immediate gain. So even on Klusendorf's own standard of lessening evil and doing the greatest good, uh, he might have convinced us that we could do the best short-term good for abortion by voting pragmatically, but he has not at all convinced me that that has done the best, that will do the best long-term good. In fact, I think it might do a lot of long-term damage. And my hypothetical's just as valid as his hypothetical because we're not omniscient. But there is somebody who is omniscient, and that, of course, is God. And God tells us that the greatest good is moral integrity and a refusal to compromise. It's not a defining of our own good and compromising his holy means for what we perceive to be his ends. Faithfulness, even in the face of seeming defeat and seeming ineffectiveness, that's what God calls us to. And it's because we're not omniscient, in part because we're not omniscient, that we don't try to control the future. We don't define good and evil for ourselves. We remain faithful even in the face of seeming defeat. And the Bible is, that's largely what the Bible is about when you go and read stories about how God works in the world. All right, on to point four. But before we do, let's do a quick recap up to this point. So first, Klusendorf gave us a false binary from which to choose. Right, we have to choose Republican or Democrat. Second, he says the other party is accountable for their whole platform, while he takes only the good incurred by his party. And third, Klusendorf seems to think that the greatest good is what he perceives as the most immediate achievable good, and refuses to take long-term good into account, as well as the option that sacrificing achievement for integrity is the greatest good. All right, point four. The fourth problem with Klusendorf's position is that it's inconsistently applied in two ways. Now, I do want to emphasize before we start this, I recognize that these do not undermine his um, intellectual position. But what they do is they undermine the witness and the moral force that comes behind it. Because when you're inconsistent, significantly inconsistent on something, um, then that's going to create a lot of problems with the moral force of your argument. And since the moral force put forward here by Klusendorf and other conservative Christians is, is very extreme, because right, we're talking about killing hundreds of thousands of babies, um, because they're very indignant about them and their, their level of indignation is high, that means that for them to be credible, because they think this is such a bad thing, they should be pretty immaculate on this issue themselves. And what we find is that intellectually, they seem to be pretty far away from that, in my opinion. So let's look at two ways that, that their moral force is undermined. Um, the first way touches on, on pacifism. And, and uh, again, we talk about this, I think, episode seven of season one, and I definitely talk about some of this stuff in the consequentialism series. But most conservative Christians are pro-war. We especially love the, the Revolutionary War because that's what got us our freedom, 
Uh, we love July 4th. We like the idea of overthrowing dictators. We love resist the resistance in Nazi Germany, like the French resistance. Um, and we like movies where Nazis are killed. They got justice. They got what was coming. And we bemoan all those, those German citizens who didn't do the right thing and stand up to the Nazis and kill them and resist or hide Jews. When we watch movies like The Dirty Dozen, we love that Nazis are getting what they, they deserve. They're getting justice. When we watch videos like Ray Comfort's 180, we bemoan the moral relativism of moderns who would just stand by and watch Jews be killed. And at the same time, we call what's going on in the U.S. with abortion the modern Holocaust. And I, I agree with that. We are killing many, many, many human beings, more, more than Hitler killed. Um, and here's what gets me, though. So we were fine with starting a war in the Revolutionary War, for a small tax levied on us and a deficiency in representation. Um, but we recognize today that Planned Parenthood has been taking tax money from us and tens of million, uh, millions of voiceless have been disenfranchised because they've been killed. Yet most of the pro-life community, uh, the anti-abortion community, is content to conclude very strongly that uh, we must do all we can to stop it, but their conclusion is that the biggest thing we can do to stop it, the end of the line, is voting Republican. That's the biggest negative thing we can do, right? Legislation would be negative justice. It's trying to uh, stop somebody from doing a wrong. So voting to the pro-life community is, is the end of the line. But to vote for a party that appointed 11 of the last 15, and I, I think soon to be 12 of the last 16, Supreme Court justices, um, and yet hasn't even come close to overturning Roe, um, I mean, that, that's not a very pragmatic or successful solution. We've sat back on our vote for, for 50 years here, uh, and nothing's happened. Now, to me, as a, as a pacifist, it makes sense to me that I don't go out and kill somebody. I've got a reason for not trying to take control in that way. Jesus, right? But for many who speak out so indignantly about abortion, and rightfully so, because it, it is morally reprehensible and unjust, but for those who, who speak out against it, they tend to be very self-righteous about voting while failing to carry out their logic to self-sacrificial application. And I'm not just talking about the, the positive justice here, right, of, of um, adoption and things. I mean, they think that the Revolutionary War is just and they, they um, prop that up as, as being great. Yet we have the greatest injustice, a far greater injustice than, than Nazi Germany uh, and, and their killing of 6 million Jews. We've had like 60 million babies be killed over decades and we think it was just to fight over taxes and representation, yet while we're getting taxed and uh, while people who should be represented are killed, we just say, meh, I, I have to cast my vote, and that's, that's the most I can do. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm glad that conservative Christians aren't being consistent here. I'm glad that they're not out, most of them. Uh, only extremists are bombing uh, clinics and, and shooting abortion doctors. Uh, I don't think that's a good thing to do, but it's really hard 
for, for those who aren't pacifists and those who are uh, avidly anti-abortion and think that we have to do all that we can do um, because it's, it's an egregious evil, it's the modern holocaust, it's extremely inconsistent to me that they're not taking violence in their own hands. And there's a lot to flesh out there. Um, you might disagree with me on that. I don't, I don't really know how, um, you know, which one would you throw out, the Revolutionary War, uh, the illegitimate use of violence, or your comfortable life that keeps you from killing abortion doctors. I don't know. I don't know which one you'd throw out and how you'd do it. But um, there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I have a couple episodes on that uh, you can explore. The second inconsistency that I see, though, in the pro-life community, and I, I could not find Klusendorf's position on this, but um, by and large, conservative evangelicals use forms of birth control, which have, if not as a primary method, secondary methods of abortion, often, which is often the thinning of the uterine lining. Now, we, we discovered this a little bit uh, like a year or two into our marriage, and um, just just taking uh, what was the name of the like progesterone only pill or something. So taking something that that seems harmless. It's not like the day after pill. It's not nothing like that. But most forms of birth control of of pill in pill form are going to have as a primary or as a secondary means abortion. They uh, at least as a secondary means, you're not preventing conception, you're plant, uh, preventing implantation. And that's abortion. And most conservative evangelicals that we know, and I, I don't have stats on this, so I, I can't say, um, you know, somebody might be able to correct me on this, but if it's not the vast majority, there are a lot of conservative evangelicals that um, are very anti-abortion, but are very pro-birth control pill, without, without caring that it's really abortive. And on top of this, there are many conservative evangelicals who are okay with allowing abortion for rape, ectopic pregnancies, as well as some other circumstances. Now, I know that's contentious, and we do have several episodes on ectopic pregnancies, and I do know that that's a difficult topic, and I don't want to be judgmental about that because we know people who've gone through that, and it's a difficult choice, and we thought that we might be faced with that choice at one point. And it's, yeah, it's, it is uh, difficult. I understand that. But we're not talking about what's easy or difficult here. We're talking about um, intellectually, morally, theologically, how are we going to be consistent? Let's just suffice it to say that we are okay with killing kids in circumstances we deem necessary and outside of our control, uh, outside of things that our wealth and good family structures can prevent us from having to face, Yet we find it abhorrent when others kill in circumstances that we think they could have prevented. And um, again, I'm not going to be able to, to defend why I think these situations are wrong to kill in. Uh, but in the next point, we will touch on double effects. Uh, and you could kind of pull out um, my rationale for, for why things like ectopic pregnancies are problematic for Christians. And you can also visit some of the other episodes. Again, I'll post below. So I don't know Klusendorf's specific stance on all of this, but I, I'm pretty sure he's um, pro-abortion in ectopic pregnancies, and I'm pretty sure he's pro-revolutionary war, but he might not be. Um, but I do know where, where most conservative Christians are going to wind up on this. So the, the righteous indignation 
against abortion seems a bit much in light of the inconsistency of of uh, you know our willingness to commit abortions out of convenience or to uh, to not do all that we can do to stop abortions. Again, this doesn't disprove Klusendorf's stance in in his podcast, but I think it significantly weakens his moral force as well as the moral force of um, the the one-issue-voting argument. All right, for the last theological-slash-moral issue, I am going to double-dip here uh, with, with an issue that I'm going to actually use as the first point in the next section after this breakup. So my, my fifth issue is that Klusendorf fails to recognize that the president's crassness, as he calls it, isn't a double effect. So we've talked a lot about Aquinas' idea of double effect on this podcast, and it seems like people just love to overapply and therefore misapply double effects. And to refresh, let me give you two scenarios, one which is a double effect and the other which is not. So here's a legitimate double effect. A pregnant woman has cancer and decides to take chemo, which might kill her child, or even even almost certainly kill her child. The child does end up dying. This is a double effect. She took the chemo. Chemo is not inherently a problem. She took it to kill the cancer as a side effect. It has the double effect of killing the cancer as well as killing the child. Now, here's an example of something that is not a double effect, and we can find this in 2 Kings. It's a a horrible story, but there are two families in a besieged city, and they're starving. The one mother agrees to kill her child and share, share the meat between the two families so that their families don't starve, and then the other mother is going to kill her child the next day to feed their, to feed their families. They're going to share then too. Now, the one mother goes to the king and she says, hey, look, I killed my kid, I did my part, and we ate him, but now the other mother's hiding her kid. Now, some people would, would try to argue that this is a double effect, right? So a mother, uh, to save lives, right, a good, we can all agree that saving the lives of two families, I mean, I don't know how big the families were, but saving the lives of two families is a great good. But the means used to do that is murder. The, uh, the means were evil, right? In the chemo example, the chemo is not evil, evil, trying to kill the cancer is not evil, intent is not to kill the child, but as a side effect, that does happen. In this, the death of the child, the killing of the child, is a means to accomplish the ends, and that is not a double effect. But what consequentialists have started to do, or, I mean, who knows how long they've been doing it, but they want to apply a double effect to anything that they like that has a, a good outcome, which they find desirable, but requires some shady or evil means. And so they're like, a double effect, right? But that's not a double effect just because the end result is good. Stopping abortions, great. It would be awesome if abortion doesn't happen. But to use an evil means to accomplish that, not good. Doesn't justify it. So in the podcast, Klusendorf implicitly, uh, he implies that a leader's character is not connected to what we're voting for. And you've probably heard this before, you know, I'm not electing a pastor-in-chief, I'm electing a commander-in-chief. You add people, many people in in conservative circles, at least the ones that I run in, 
Uh, you have people like the president's spiritual advisor, uh, Jeffress. I don't know if he's still the, the advisor, but uh, great. Uh, I shouldn't say great. He's a uh, prominent evangelical leader, and he went so far as to say that he would not want somebody, he, he would not vote for somebody who was like Jesus because Jesus' methodology wouldn't work very well in the world. He literally said that. I'll, I'll give you an article below, and you can go and read the exact quote. But that is insane. Jeffress acknowledges what a lot of conservative evangelicals who vote for Trump think, which is that uh, we don't want a nice guy, and I think Falwell said this, but we don't want a nice guy, we want a fighter, right? We want somebody who's gonna, gonna uh, do things that maybe aren't the best, but get us what we want. That kind of thinking goes against what the church thought less than two decades ago, and I'll use here as representative of the evangelicals, um, the Southern Baptist Convention, after Bill Clinton's affair, and again, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but uh, they, had, they had a lot of resolutions that talked about the importance of, um, of political leaders adhering to, to moral codes. Like they, they wanted moral leaders. But even beyond what the church says, I mean, who cares what, what uh, the, the church is saying if it's not what the Bible says? Just go and read a book like Proverbs on positive expectations for leaders. And also look at some of the things that are condemned in other leaders. And I know that people are going to try to say, well, that was, that was for Israel, as if morality isn't always objective. But um, go and look at how God condemned some of the, uh, the other nations, too, and for the things that they condemned them. Pride is, is one that comes up quite a lot. Um, but yeah, we, we do have expectations for our leaders. There are moral expectations on our leaders that we should have as Christians. Leadership and character go hand in hand. So when you vote, you're not merely voting for policies as if policies aren't themselves representations of who crafts them. Character is a, a core, an intrinsic part of the issue, which Jeffress himself recognized and, in my opinion, voiced for the broader conservative community. Just like the mother in Second Kings couldn't separate the negative of murder from the end result of staying alive, so we have no biblical warrant to separate the morality of a leader from God's approval of them and his withholding of judgment upon them and those that they represent. When someone votes for a platform with clear moral issues or a leader with clear moral deficiencies, that's not a double effect. As Jeffress and many Christians recognize, the main reason they like Trump is because he's not like Jesus. He fights in a way that we think is going to get us what we want, even if, if that what we want is a good thing that is uh, outside of ourselves, like saving children's lives. The president's moral character displayed prior to an election isn't some secondary problem that rears its head down the road. It's a part of what you're signing on to, especially if you believe in biblical character, biblical leadership, and you recognize the connection between trees and their fruit. Klusendorf wants to divorce moral character from the election, but that's something the church hasn't done until four or so years ago, and something that the Bible definitely doesn't do at all. All right, so... Let's move away from the moral theological issues now and look at what I think are some of the more technical or pragmatic issues. I don't know. They might, they might have some overlap with uh, moral theological, but I don't know. I just I split them up. So here we go. First, I'll do my double dipping. For the fifth point above, 
I met Klusendorf where he was, and I used the president's, quote, crassness as our example. However, I think that move by Klusendorf is, is disingenuous. It's similar to what Grudem does in his article defending the president. You know, so what, what Grudem ends up doing is uh, he says that the president isn't morally compromised, and then he spends the rest of the article telling us all the positive results we'll, getting, uh, we'll get for voting for him. So he, he pretty much refuses to defend his assertion that the president isn't morally compromised. He just kind of asserts it. And then he uses the uh, legerdemain to insert good things we want to hear, and that will make us uh, make our lives easier and want to vote for him. And I, I didn't like that. In, in a somewhat similar move here, Klusendorf sets up a straw man when he implies that those voting against Trump are doing so simply because he's crass, right? No, he's, he's not morally compromised. He's, he's a little crass, maybe. Um, I mean, I, I asked myself, is, is, is he really going to boil down the moral issues that so many Christians have with our president and his party as being represented in this word crass? That just seems extremely dismissive to me. Um, now, whether we're talking about the president's sexual ethic, the lying, inciting anger, the disrespect towards others, his itching ears and refusing to listen to advisors, the nepotism and self-interested deals that he pushes through, etc. List goes on. Um, that's more than being crass. Um, from just a what I remember, like when I when I read through Proverbs and when I think of the Bible in terms of leadership. Uh, pride and selfishness are are two really big issues for leaders, and they're two of the biggest things that I see in in President Trump. Now, maybe that's true of all politicians, but I, I don't have to defend my vote for another politician because I'm I'm not doing that. But that's that's a problem, and it's not a problem of being crass. It's just not a fair representation at all to say that or imply that people who don't vote for Trump feel that Trump is disqualified because he's crass. That's, uh, that's extremely dismissive. Second, there is a huge assumption here that Biden is dumping gas on the burning house and that Trump isn't. Now, maybe Trump is running into the house to save kids, but Who's to say that on his way out, he's not tripping some immigrants and poor people, uh, you know, to get ahead? Morality isn't simply taking the act we think is most important and using that to eclipse all other moral considerations. For many Christians who can't vote for Trump, abortion is important, but it doesn't justify what seems to be non-Christian positions against other significant forms of injustice towards groups that the Bible identifies over and over and over as the oppressed. Biden and Trump are, might both be pouring gasoline on different houses uh, that are on fire, but it's, uh, I don't think that it's a fair assessment to just say that Biden's out there dumping gas and Trump isn't dumping gas on a different fire. All right, third, Klusendorf not only assumes that Trump isn't dumping gas on a fire or tripping people on his way out, but Klusendorf also assumes that the Democrats are holding gasoline in their can and not water. At one point uh, on the podcast, they even say that Biden, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but I think they say that Biden wants to kill more babies. Um, like he wants to kill children. 
meaning meaning in abortion, like he's going to set up laws so that more can be killed. Like he he wants that. Now I'm sure you could find a Democrat who hates babies, but most Democrats would prefer to reduce abortions despite wanting them to remain legal. There's a lot of this loaded language that goes on in uh, in the wretched episode, and I I really don't like it for for that reason. Um, it's one reason I really don't like either either side of politics, but it's always so loaded and um, condescending. But well, and hopefully I avoid that. But um, you know, I definitely am not above that. So if I am. Uh, condescending, please correct me, and I will apologize, because sometimes it's hard when you're, especially when you're doing an episode like this, a lot of times I write the episodes a while before, like months before, or weeks before, and then I go and record them, and that gives me time to kind of settle down, but this is pretty fresh, so please forgive me if if my tone has been negative. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, so, if you go to uh, to Vischer's video, if you're familiar with that, his video identifies that abortion has been steadily going down for decades, regardless of, of who is in office. Now, it goes down for different groups disproportionately, and I, I did an episode on that, but uh, it goes down overall, regardless of who's in office. And we could posit many different explanations for why this is the case, but we have a good idea that better health care and better education contribute to it, uh, pulling people out of poverty contributes to this. It's interesting uh, that Klusendorf and others desire so badly to have Roe versus Wade overturned when experts estimate that uh, this would only stop about 12% of abortions, I believe the number is. You know, pro-lifers say, what do you mean only 12%? That's hundreds of thousands of babies over the course of, of a decade. Right, I, I agree with that. Hundreds of thousands of babies saved. Awesome. Yet when some want to vote Democrat, arguing that democratic policies, which provide better health care and education and assistance to poverty, will bring the numbers down, conservatives scoff at this and say, well, that's not good enough just to bring the numbers down. We want to make it, uh, we want to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yet what conservatives are ultimately, most conservatives, there are some abolitionists who won't stop at anything but pure abolition, but... Uh, what most conservatives are ultimately fighting for is further out of reach than fixing education and health care, and it itself doesn't abolish abortion. Very few Christians are fighting for the abolition of abortion altogether, as many either want it legal in some cases, like rape, incest, uh, fetal deformities, most birth control, which is abortive in nature, or ectopic pregnancies, or medical emergencies, and they're willing to compromise to do what they feel they need to do to reduce abortion numbers. So it's a, it's a double standard, really, because Democrats, most Democrats, are seeking to do the same thing. Abortion is the, let's say that abortion is the fire in Klusendorf's analogy. There are many on both sides who want to implement policies which help women not to get into those situations. You might say it's similar to alcohol, Prohibition didn't work, and we recognize that alcohol is a serious problem still today in terms of the lives that it kills or ruins. Neither side wants death or destruction from drunk driving. We don't say that just because Republicans aren't looking to repeal alcohol or make it harder to get, that they therefore want to increase drunk driving deaths. 
No, that's, that's absurd. They do the best that they can to limit what they recognize as something that's not great for society. I know that the analogy isn't perfect, and I might be able to come up with a better one on not, uh, not so short of notice, but I think, it, I think it works if you kind of take the heart of the issue there. Republicans aren't uh, pro-killing people in drunk driving just because they, they don't abolish um, alcohol. And Democrats, with some of the policies that they put forward um, with, with education or poverty or healthcare, now you might disagree that those things work. You might say, well, those don't work to do what they say they're going to do. Well, that's fine. Great. We, we can have a discussion on whether or not their legislation works. But they think that it works, and so their intent is not to kill babies, but to diminish the killing of babies. In just the same way that most Republicans are not really seeking full abolition of abortion and still want it in their birth control pills or um, in other cases like rape and incest. So I would take it that there's a fire and both sides are trying to, to uh, stifle it a little bit, but um, I, I don't think any side is trying to dump gasoline on it. Finally, Klusendorf and the pro-life community forget that their enlightenment was a process and their conversion to a pro-life position and advocacy was tainted by other factors. So the, the pro-life position is clearly an early church position. You can find very early writings talking about infanticide and, and even abortion, which I didn't, I didn't know until a couple years ago. I thought they'd only talk about like exposing infants. I didn't realize that they had procedures and medicines that were abortive. I mean, it shouldn't have surprised me, but... Yeah, the early church does talk about that. But then again, the church is, the early church is also univocal about the death, uh, being against the death penalty and um, against violence at all. And we don't follow that. So no surprise that at some point certain Christians, a lot of Christians break away from, from certain teachings. And while the Catholic church has always been against abortion and birth control, I might add, the Protestant church in the U.S. has been fairly split on it until something like the 1970s. I mean, you can find uh, Christians from like conservative places like Dallas Theological Seminary who are saying, oh, well, I thought that insolment kind of happened later in the, the development process. Or um, Christianity Today, which was run by Billy Graham uh, back in the day, they had a forum in the 60s with Christian medical professionals and um, they were the medical professionals, as well as a 1971 Southern Baptist Convention prior to Roe versus Wade. They acknowledged, hey, you know what? Abortion's good in in some circumstances, and some of the circumstances that they identified were circumstances that uh, the the real conservative Christians who are the most vocal against abortion they'd have significant issues with. So it's not like we today are carrying this torch against abortion that Christians have always had and that uh, all of a sudden we started aborting kids in the 1970s after Roe versus Wade, which Vischer's video kind of points out. Um, but for evangelical Protestants, it's, it's been a journey that we've only recently arrived at. And even more recently, an issue that we've only really become very vocal and political about. And 
uh, if you if you know any more about our history, now you you could argue this part, but it seems like abortion was an issue that was co-opted by a Republican Party that began to use Wallace's racist platform. They they I mean you can look at their speeches. They use you know, basically the same speech. Wallace said, "Hey, you could you basically just copied my speech." They use coded racial language, and they began to be used by religious leaders who were fighting to keep tax-exempt status alongside of segregation. You've got Bob Jones University, which only, which only it was like what allowed interracial marriage or couples, interracial couples or something, uh, on uh, at their college in two thousand, and that's only uh, because well, I can't say it's only, but it, it was influenced by Bush going to visit visit uh, that college. So I mean, you've race is a a really big running theme in the Republican Party. Uh, around this time, I mean, you got to remember 1960s civil rights and and all kinds of turmoil going on, and then uh, the Christian community is pretty split on abortion. They're pretty okay with it, 50-50 maybe, and um, and even those who are against it are okay with it in circumstances that we think are, would be appalling today. And then all of a sudden, it's uh, it's like the biggest issue, one vote issue in the world. Now I'm I'm glad our community got the abortion issue right. I, we're, we're, well, we're very right that abortion is wrong. Um, I don't think we're right enough because of some of the situations that we're okay with it. But uh, our community got it right, and I'm thankful that we came around to it. But the point is that it took us a really long time to get it right, and it took us a long time to make it an important issue. And when we did come around... It wasn't because any new information was added. I mean, heck, the the early church, two thousand years ago, adhered to um, were against abortion, so they knew that it was wrong from day one. Now we came on board, seemingly because those with another agenda used it to manipulate us to buy the whole package, and that's exactly what Klusendorf wants us to do right now: buy the whole package. They loved one issue voting because they were able to get other unchristian items in there with it. Now, we act as though we are, are morally high and mighty today, we who are against abortion. We forget that our history, uh, we forget our history, and, and we forget the persuasion that it took to get us not only intellectually on board, but to get us passionate about it. Klusendorf and many other conservative pro-lifers act as though the other side is blind, often implying willful blindness, and they demonize them and think that they're... Uh, basically literally called them Nazis, right? This is the modern-day Holocaust, so they're the Nazis. So be it, but then what about our past with abortion and our ancestors only one or two generations removed? And what of our willingness to accept the whole package and some of the, the anti-race, anti-poverty, uh, anti-immigrants aspects of it that are, are reprehensible to God? Now, our history is really ugly, and that doesn't exempt others from doing the right thing now. And we aren't culpable for what our parents did in the past. We don't bear that guilt. But we are responsible to do right with what we've been handed. If nothing else, this knowledge should cause our humility, our tone, and our graciousness to be different than what it so often is. All right, so uh, I think as far as the issues go, that's... Um, that's where I'm at at the moment. And this is just an initial response uh, that I, I made without really being able to sift through everything and dig in and, and dwell on things for a couple weeks. 
which is what I usually like to do. Actually, I like to dwell on things for a couple of years, but um, you know, I, I wanted to get out a, a quick response because um, I think it's important for Christians to sift through before they do go and vote or choose not to vote. I know it's a bird's eye view of some of the issues, but I, I think I back up a lot of what I said in other episodes um, and, and dig into those there. And I can also provide you with with more links in the show notes. And if you ever want to contact me, I'd be happy to, to chat and share some things person to person. In closing, it seems to me that Klusendorf assumes that he is able to morally weigh these issues here accurately and that he concludes we, we have to vote for, um, vote for the Republican Party because of the abortion issue. You know, would you vote for a crass man or for Hitler? And, and if he wants to kind of minimize what's going on here, uh, let, let me maximize it because sometimes maximizing things helps you to see uh, what's really going on. You know, I'd, I'd ask Klusendorf, if, if you were in a democracy and you had to vote between Stalin, who killed way more people than Hitler did, or Hitler, who had horrible things, like, I mean, his was probably more torturous overall, um, you know, who, who would you vote for? And I, I imagine that Klusendorf would say he, he wouldn't vote for either because he'd recognize that both candidates were evil or espoused, espoused evil, evil legislation, evil policies. We recognize that when we have two people so clearly evil, we would not want to adjoin ourselves to them. But how many babies' lives have to be taken for you to not vote Democrat? And how many minority lives, poor and immigrants, have to be taken for you not to vote Republican. When you start playing the consequentialist game, you are just playing with degrees of evil. And to think that you can mess with any evil and have that deemed just and good by God, that's a problem. That's not objective morality. That's relativism. Uh, that's consequentialism. That being said, I do appreciate Klusendorf. He's, he's been a big influence on me in terms of um, my understanding of, of abortion and the arguments against it. I think he is right about how unjust abortion is. However, I don't think that he, along with most conservative American Christians, recognize how abhorrent the political idolatry is that we adhere to and the political landscape and, and what we're really getting on board with it causes the church to lose its distinctive witness. It has us vying for power plays, which ironically is condemned when it comes to racial justice in our society amongst conservative Christians, right? but it's pursued when we talk about abortion. If, if I talk about race, just preach the gospel. You're a social justice warrior. But when it comes to abortion, vote Republican and let's be activists against abortion. And that's, that's duplicitous. That's, that's a problem. Um, we equivocate on this, this idea of gospel and the idea of social justice. And it's, it's ugly. It's really ugly. And we don't see it, but unfortunately, people who aren't Christians and people who are leaving the church do see that. Ultimately, my concern isn't whether you vote or not. Um, I, I think as a Christian, not voting would probably be better, which is why I'm not doing it. But... Um, I do get why some people vote certain ways. I'm at least sympathetic with that. But what I am concerned with in this episode is that if you do vote, you should do so with an understanding of how some Christians might be able to vote differently than you, 
or not vote at all. And hopefully, you have a better understanding that your vote isn't some action that makes you morally better than someone else. You're ascribing to some set of evil. You can't do what Klusendorf did and call out the other side on taking the whole package while you yourself only take the good. When you vote, you are divesting your power in someone and some party, uh, at least in, in the case of the United States, which has some egregious moral problems both ways. If you vote, any vote should be done with sorrow, not fanfare and joy like, like most people are doing. Hey, my guy, get my guy in. Um, and then putting the voting stickers on that, hey, look, I, I did something awesome. No, 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 we, we, should be doing our, we should be doing our voting, not propping up any particular candidate, but um, voting with sorrow at, at our moral landscape. And any candidate who gets into office, whether that's your candidate or the other team's candidate, either candidate should draw just as much scrutiny from you as they do praise, whether it's the candidate you didn't vote for, right, or, or the one that you hopefully begrudgingly voted for. A, a big change in attitude and this, um, this feeling, this atmosphere of moral superiority and um, this consequentialism just needs to go. It's a, it's a stain on the church. We need a prophetic voice to call out evil wherever we see it. And we need a priestly distinctiveness whose lives of sacrifice are a sweet aroma to our neighbors whom we seek to draw into the kingdom. Well, that's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. <laughs>